Good morning. We're continuing today our series through the book of Romans. Uh, we're chapter 2, 1 through 11. We've been talking about sin over the past few weeks, and we're going to continue talking about our sin. So if you're feeling a little beat down, uh, that's good. That's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. He's going to tenderize you like, like a good piece of meat. And uh, we're going to come out the other side. Here's a spoiler. Uh, you're worse than you ever could imagine, but God's grace is better than you deserved. Uh, so that's the spoiler alert coming up. Ron taught this last week. He taught that this is about us. This is about us. Paul had just finished laying into the Gentiles, listing off their sins, and all the Jews stood up and they said, Amen. Amen, brother Paul. Preach it. Let them have it. And I think the tendency for us as believers is we are often there as well, aren't we? We stand up, we say, amen. That's right. Honey, did you see what Pastor Ron preached on last week? We need to let Bobby know about that. Do you, do you see what's coming up? Gretchen, let's, let's, let's send her to the podcast. Let's let her listen to it. Gretchen needs to hear this. But this is us. There's a pastor named Paul Washer who uh, got famous, if you will. He got social media famous because there was a YouTube video called The Shocking Youth Message. And Paul Washer is preaching at a youth event and he's listing off. He's just he's he's fed up with the way the culture is. And he's listing off sins of the culture and sins that these kids are dealing with and messing around with. And the kids start to clap. Everybody's clapping. And Paul Washer's dead-faced. And he's looking at them and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. You see, I, I don't want any of us to clap today. <laughs> Hold your clapping, because I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about my wife and kids and my friends and my family. I'm talking about us. Because before we focus on the speck in our neighbor's eye, we have to deal with the two-by-four in our own. We know this. So with all this in place, let's read Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Did you know that since 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace combined? Where you add up all the little year here, year there, months there, 
And during this period, there have been 14,351 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of the property destroyed is equal to a golden belt around the entire world, 97.2 miles wide, 33 feet thick. Well, the good news is there have been 8,000 peace treaties, but those have all been broken as well. And what we just read from Paul affirms the reality of what we know started way back in the Garden of Eden. We are a people at war. We're placed on the battlefield from birth. David in the Psalm, Psalm 51, 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. No child has to be taught how to whine, how to complain, how to be selfish. Idolatry, greed, malice, all these things are inherited traits from our father Adam. We come into the world sick with sin, and we're at enmity with God. We're at war with God. And unless something is done about that sin, we will die in that miserable state. And Paul tells us back in Romans 1, he says, that's, that's not even as worse as you think it is. It's actually worse. It's actually even worse than that because not only are you sinners from birth, you're rebellious sinners. You enjoy it. You like it. And not only do you know God exists from birth, you hate him for existing. You hate his truth. Stephen Lawson, the pastor, he says this. He says, you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's like a kid who takes the, the biggest beach ball in the pool. And they hold, you know, they're trying to get it down in the water. And they're sitting there struggling with this. And they want to suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. They want to submerge it. It's the spiritual equivalent of having your fingers jammed in your ears. La, 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 la. No, not hearing that. I don't want to hear that. But all this exchanging of truth, suppressing the truth, it's a fool's errand. It, 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 there's no consistent worldview there. You cannot continue down that path. Paul says, you sit on that beach ball, you're trying to maintain balance. You're refusing to see God as creator and Lord, but you're without excuse. You know. You know. And because of your disobedience, Paul says, Romans 1.28, as we talked about last week, he gives them over to their debased and warped minds. He lets them believe the lie. These rebels are at war with God. The Bible says his wrath burns hot against them. And Paul's going to say, such were some of you. Such were some of you in this room. Such are some still. And yet, remarkably, here's the, the tremendous truth of the passage. We're not consumed. You see, for time and time again, God sends prophets and Pauls and pastors and parents. He sends these people in our life to proclaim the truth of the gospel. He sends them as messengers, as lifeboats to bring us back to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Repent Call upon the name, you will be saved. You see, we are a people at war, and the peace that we enjoy right now, the peace that I enjoy this very moment, is actually a ceasefire. We're living in a season of tremendous mercy and grace where God has made an armistice with mankind. He's made a peace treaty with mankind. 
And during this momentary peace, He calls us to repent. He says, the end of the war will come. I will be victorious. You know I will be victorious. And I'm calling you to my side. I sent my son onto the battlefield to bring you to me. Lay down your weapons. Surrender. Join the king's camp. You'll know the scene from various films. It's, it's always the same scene. There is a horrible villain. And the villain has done cruel and vile things. And then there comes the moment where the hero is about to slay him or finish him off. Or he's hanging from the precipice. And you sit there in the audience and the hero does something remarkable. He reaches out his hand. Or he says, go, leave, never come back. And he shows this villain tremendous amounts of grace. But what does the villain do nine times out of ten? Oh, okay, all, all, you know, does he pretend to accept the mercy? Does he slap away the hand and choose death? Does he pull out his blade for one final unexpected blow? And you sit there in the, the audience, you're sitting there in the crowd, and you go, what a fool! What an idiot! Why would anyone refuse mercy? Why would anyone scorn grace after what he's just done? But this is the current state of mankind apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. All of us refuse the hand. We don't see Christ as beautiful. Only 296 years of peace combined leads us to our first point. God is not fooled by our hypocrisy. Romans 2, 1 through 3. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself... Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There was a religious leader, not really a religious leader, but he was a leader, and he made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions, which would become the pillars of his new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered Bible. He declared that he drew strength for his great work from it. Indeed, Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity. You see, this is a provocative question now. We have a provocative question before us. Are you a better person than Hitler? Outwardly? Inwardly? All of us here, if we took a poll, you'd probably find that yes box and as quick as possible, right? Yes, of, co of course I'm a better person than Hitler. But if you know the Bible decently well, if we did a, a quick little spiritual checkup, what do you think the answer is? Based on the Ten Commandments alone, has anyone ever made an idol out of something? Worshipped it? You ever misused God's name, forgotten the Sabbath, keep it holy? What about honoring your parents? Hating someone in your heart, wishing them dead, so forth, so on. 
all of us are failing. Based on God's law, Paul says, do you not now see the folly of standing over someone else as their supreme judge and jury? If you want your good works to be judged according to the law, the letter of the law, and you want to judge others based on that same law, then the Bible says you better be perfect if you expect God to accept you based on those works, based on your outward religious morals. Holding others to a higher standard than we keep ourselves. This is the height of hypocrisy. But we are hypocritical people. Our sinful hearts make no sense. Blaise Pascal famously said, The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. You see, our heart is unreasonable. That's why when people say, You just need to follow your heart. I want to say, please do not. Don't do that. Do not follow your heart. It'll, It'll lead you horrible places. Later on in Romans, Paul is going to say, 7.15, he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. You see, it's unreasonable. It makes no sense why we sin. It makes no sense why we're at war sometimes. Hypocrisy naturally comes out of all of us because we suppress the truth. We run from the light. We don't want our sinful deeds to be exposed. We put on our little Christian church masks and we walk around and we secretly, you know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that person. Why wouldn't wouldn't God let me into heaven? Of course, I'm a good person. Do you know how easy it is for me to fall into that time and time again, even though I know better? I know better. And I constantly am falling in that trap. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like those people. Oh, I'm so great. It's probably why 65% of the U.S. population claims they're Christians. Because they're all good people. They all think they're really good people. Do you think that's true? 65%? What's the real number? 50, 40, 30? Let us sit in the place of judgment and guess. What's the number? The Lord knows. And we're being hypocritical when we judge others and we don't even look to our own selves. You see, the Jewish leaders, of course, were no strangers to this. The Bible's filled with Jesus' rebukes against them based on their hypocrisy. We know it well. And this is because often the worst hypocrites tend to be the strongest legalists. In their obsession to be justified by the letter, they end up crushed by it. Because I go out every morning and I say, Heath, this is it. This is your day. You're going to be great today. You're not going to sin. You're just going to do this. I'm going to be a perfect individual. And then I get in my car and somebody cuts me off on the road and I've already lost it. And I'm crushed. I'm crushed under the weight of the law. And so what happens to these people is they live these outward religious moral lives and then their evil deeds are exposed the beach ball surfaces and they've been holding it down so long it erupts infamously i'm not sure if you followed any of this but jerry falwell jr the case that just came out this guy who was the paragon the poster boy right his father was a pastor and he was the i think the president of of a christian college he was the moral judge And then these shameful things come out about him. And it's almost like he's glad they did. It's almost like he's glad the charade is over. He was tired of holding the beach ball down. 
can stop living the lie. You see, in our culture, it's extremely popular to do this, to blame, to blame someone else. It's never our problem. It's always someone else's problem. It's the Democrats' fault. No, 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 it's the Republicans' fault. Yeah, but it's my parents' fault. Oh, yeah, well, it's my church's fault. It always comes back to someone else's fault. Did the devil make you do it this time, or were you just being a jerk? Let me ask you, why didn't the flood fix all our problems? You see, because Noah survived. (laughs) So let's blame Noah. G.K. Chesterton was asked, what's wrong with the world? He famously replied, I am. We're at war. And pretending that you're on God's side, pretending to be a Christian, you're not going to fool him. It will not save you. It will not help you. He will not be mocked. By your outward shows of religiosity, your morals do not impress him. Only those who have clung to Jesus Christ, who have been buried and hidden with him, will ever be looked upon. And and God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant at the end of days. So Paul says, let's stop pretending. Let's not, don't say amen, stop clapping. I'm talking about you. Let's not pretend like genealogy or social standing or fame or fortune. None of that is why God hasn't wiped you like a bug off his windshield. You're either at war with God or you're at war with sin, which leads me to my second point. The truce is almost over. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, Paul's saying, don't you get it? The reason God hasn't smote you dead is because he's kind. It's not because you're such a good person. It's because he loves you. It's because he's kind. And it's because he's still conforming you and transforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, if you're a believer. And Paul says, he's saying, what happens... Here. What happens when, when somebody breaks a peace treaty? Well, the ceasefire ends. The war resumes. Blood is spilt. And what the Bible says, the beautiful thing that the Bible says, is that we broke the peace treaty long, long ago. We are covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. And so how does God respond? By utterly wiping us all out, by destroying us? No, 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 no. He sins. He sends Jesus, who's the ultimate covenant keeper, who's the ultimate law keeper. And he dies in our place for all of our sins, for all of our breaking, for all of our awful things. And this is meant to be kindness. It's meant to lead us to repentance. Stop your hostilities. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. The Bible says, remember how God dealt graciously with Nineveh. You remember Nineveh? Jonah didn't even want to talk to them because he knew God was so kind. He said, you're going to forgive them, aren't you? You're just going to do it. So turn. Let his kindness bring you to repentance. Three points here quickly. First, God's kindness. Think of how good God has been to you, to me, in our past despite our foolish years of youth. Despite our backsliding, think of, think of your most shameful moment. And then sit and wonder that God has not erased you. 
In fact, he's given you food and drink and clothing and shelter and love and a community. And how have we repaid him? Have we loved him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength? You see, the kindness is meant to draw us. It's meant to woo us. It's a call. It's a beautiful gospel call. It rings out across the battlefield. There can be peace. There can be peace between God and man. Christ has made peace. Come, be reconciled to God. Secondly, what of his forbearance? For the, patient, for the parents in the room, uh, how, how much forbearance do you have with your children? How long before they look at you and they say, no, do you snap? A minute? Do you, do you give them a minute of grace? Two minutes? If you're, if you're like me, it's 15 seconds of grace. And yet how many, how many years has God been patient with some of us? 30, 40, 50, 60 years of forbearance, of patience? How many years has he held out his hand only for you to slap it away? How many countless individuals sit in pews all across the world, hearing the good news of the gospel, having friends love them and call them and bring them to church, and parents that love them and pull them to church, and they sit in those pews and they say, eh, it's not for me. I'm not into that old. I'll just sit there. And they know the truth. And they hear the truth. And God is pouring out his love upon them saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And they return every week to the pig's slop. It's remarkable to me. Remarkable to me that there can be God-hating individuals who publicly slander his name, who openly dare him to damn them. And God responds. What does he say? He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, though they shall be white, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You see, he looks on these blasphemers with pity and with compassion and with mercy. And if they would but look to Christ, they would instantly be changed into a son or a daughter of the king. Riches, riches. Riches of kindness, Paul says. Thirdly, God's patience and long-suffering, this extends into the future. All of us have an expiration date. We know that. Two things in life that are certain, death and taxes, right? You know you're going to die. But it is assured that God will deal with us one day at death. You see, the Roman officers back in the day, they would carry on their shoulders these rods and they would be bound. And in the middle of the rods would be an axe sticking out. And they would bring the accused person forwards before the judge. And the judge would look at that person, hear their pleas, see if there was any sign of repentance. And all while they were doing this, the Roman officers would untie the cords, would untie the bounds slowly, slowly, and pull out the sticks that they were going to scourge the person with. And they would scourge the person. They would hit the person, seeing if that person would repent of their crimes. And if they did not, finally came the axe. And you see, every single day that you breathe God's air, he is undoing the cords. And he's saying, come, come before the scourge. Come before the axe falls. 
I'm looking for your repentance. I want you to come to my son. I'm calling you. I'm wooing you. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Which leads me to my third point, the aftermath of the battle. This is Romans 2, 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In every war, you see there are winners and losers. And to the victor goes the spoils. So what are the spoils of war for believers? Well, we know from Scripture that the ultimate and final battle has already been won. Praise be to Christ for that. Jesus, on the cross, he exhausted the wrath of God towards the elect. He took our sins upon himself. With the resurrection, he conquered the power of sin and death once and for all. The empty tomb was Proof that the check cleared, the money was good, all of your sins paid for. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, and all who are born again in the King will rise to everlasting glory. Paul says this of believers. He says, Who by patience and well doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, first, it means Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You see, just as God is patient with us, just as he is kind with us, as believers now we're to be patient with others. Patient in doing good, not giving up. You know, what's, what's it all for? Am I just doing, what am I doing this good for? What's it all for? Let us be patient with ourselves as well. Do you know how, how easy it is? I get down on myself. I go, that's sin again? I'm doing that again? I, I've said that thing again? Lord, how long am I going to sin that same stupid? I need to be patient. I need to pray. I need to ask the Lord to work and move. And Okay, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll, I'll rest in Him again and I'll, I'll go. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit working within us, it's a gift it's a spoil of the victory because Jesus left. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. Counselor. We're going to win the battle. Secondly, we are men and women of valor. I love this. It makes me want to grunt. Men and women of valor. We seek final glorification in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. There's a weight of glory. A weight of glory that awaits us. Thirdly, we seek eternal honor and immortality. What does, this look, what does eternal honor look like for the believer? Well, there's a young girl named Martha Myers who was born in 1977, and from an extremely young age, she had a heart for missions. 
At the age of 12, she realized she thought, medicine will be my, my entry point into the field of missions. I will go as a doctor, and I will help, and then I'll be a missionary as well. During a break in her medical school, she traveled to Yemen on a short-term mission trip, and she believed that this was where God was calling her to witness. You see, she left friends, she left family, she gave up a career in medicine in the States to go and serve in a primarily Muslim country as a believer. This passion for the people kept her in Yemen, despite very early on being carjacked and held captive by Muslim militants. They threatened her to kill her, and she said, well, I'll be in heaven. During her decades of missionary service, she saved thousands of lives. Thousands of lives through her medical practice. In the end, she lost her own life when an assailant entered the medical clinic and shot three of the missionary personnel working there with her. Long before this, she had requested to be buried in Yemen should anything happen to her. And her friends took her body, paid for her funeral, bought her a casket. And when her father was asked about it, he said, over here in the United States, that would just be another grave. But over there, it's a testimony. Now, I bet you've never heard of Martha Myers. She's not famous by the world's standards, but she's honored for all eternity in the hallowed halls of heaven. She's honored because her name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life in permanent ink. You see, there is no greater honor than to live for Christ and to die for Christ. Finally, sadly, I turn now to the vanquished, to the children of darkness who Paul says are storing up wrath rather than honor for themselves. They'll stand before God, they'll have no excuse, and all their sins will be laid bare. Stephen Fry, who's an English actor, comedian, he's a proud atheist, maybe some of you can uh, think of his face, you know who I'm talking about. He was asked in an interview once what he would say to God if he met him. He replied, I would say, how dare you? How dare you create a world to which there's such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Well, the interviewer was taken aback by this. He had never received that response. And he kind of made a joke. He, said, he looked at Stephen and he said, and you think you're going to get in like that? Well, Fry didn't laugh. He was indignant. And he said, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. See, Stephen Fry is still alive at this very moment. He's still enjoying a prosperous career. He's still allowed to walk God's earth. He has no concept of sin, no concept of justice, and he has no fear of God in his heart. And unless Mr. Fry, just like all of us here, unless we repent, turn from our rebellion, turn from our blasphemy, all of these words will be counted against him. Not a weight of glory, a tonnage of wrath. A mountain of justice will crash down upon his head, upon our heads, with such catastrophe that if we could see it or contemplate it, we would weep. 
And all of us here would try to contact Mr. Fry immediately. It's an emergency. It's a war. World missions is so important. Do you feel the tremendous burden for the lost? Could you or I stand under our own sin? I can't stare at the sun for more than a few seconds. And I would presume to stand before its creator in all his brilliance. I couldn't do it. So I must come with Christ. I must come with Christ. Which leads to my final, final point. Very quick. Eternal peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, for the believer, there, there's a war. Right now, there's unrest on the earth. We are killing sin. We're at war with Satan, powers of darkness. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war in our hearts. But eternal peace is assured in Christ. For the victors, a way to glory. A name of honor, Ooh. an endless treasure awaits. But for those who are warring with God today, who are suppressing the truth, who have been storing up wrath, there is no peace, there is no honor, there is no riches. And so again, today, if you hear my voice, cease, cease your apathy towards God. End your rebellion. Hear, hear the good news. That Christ died for you. To end the war. That there can be peace. True peace. He's calling you to his side. He will not treat you as your sins deserve. Or repay you according to your iniquities. How can that be so? How can he not punish me for my sins? Because it's finished. Because it's finished. Because it's paid for. Because the Bible says. They're remembered no more. Have peace with God today. Let's pray.